We're, of course, continuing our series in the book of Genesis. And uh, last week, just to bring you up to speed, last week we saw God saying to Abram at a time of fear and a time of uncertainty in his life, even though it was a great victory that he had had, do not fear, Abram, I am your shield to you. I am your very great reward. What a great expression and what a great declaration from God to Abram. Abram, however, still had some concerns. He had concerns about a son. So the Lord also graciously confirmed the promise of a son by taking Abram outside at night, showing him the stars and promising him that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in verses 4 to 5. What did Abram have to do? Well, I've got to get back to work pretty soon then if I'm going to have all those children. No. To his credit, Abram believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is a very important verse in the Scriptures. And we spoke about that. And the, and the Apostle Paul clings on to this because this is really foundational stuff for our faith. And it is contained within chapter 15. It is one of, chapter 15 in Genesis is one of the great chapters in the Bible. And, and there's a couple of things at play here. One is the matter of descendants, the son and then the descendants. And the other is the matter of the land, the real estate. So we could say that the first six verses are confirming God's promise of Abram of a son But it's not just about his son and his descendants because it's also pointing to the son, to the one who will come and and heir, who will take up the throne and who will be the one who, through whom we are reckoned as perfect and through whom we find we are declared righteous. There is a verse in the scripture that says that Jesus himself said this, that Abram saw this day and he rejoiced. And now we start in these following verses, we start to deal with the issue of the land. Verse 8. Humans want assurance. We are limited. We cannot see the future. Only God can do that. So we want assurance. Abram said, Sovereign Lord, verse 8, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Now this search for assurance comes after he has been declared righteous based solely, or not on the work that he did, but based solely on the fact that he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him, he was credited to him as righteousness. As far as Abram could tell, there wasn't much progress, however, that was being made to take possession of the land because the Canaanites were still in the land. And after 10 years of, since he's been walking, he's been journeying with the Lord since he left Ur of the Chaldeans, Abram wants to be sure. Years ago, the the late Whitney Houston sang 
this song. How will I know? Remember that song? You hear it on the radio all the time, don't you? How will I know? I'm not going to try and sing it for you. How will I know? And this is, the, this is just a part of the, the lyrics. How will I know? In brackets, don't trust your feelings. How will I know? How will I know? In brackets, love can be deceiving. How will I know? How will I know if he really loves me? I say a prayer with every heartbeat. That's a lot of prayers. I fall in love whenever we meet. I'm asking you what you know about these things. As far as Whitney Houston, she didn't come to the best of endings to her life, but she did, from what I've seen, is that she was very much influenced in the Christian faith, used to sing in church and brought up in a Christian family and all that type of stuff. But she also struggled issues of drugs and everything else in her life and, and unfortunately the doubts and everything else that she, she seems to be expressing here, even though she knows that you, need, don't have, you don't want to trust your feelings, that love can be deceiving, we find that she struggled in her relationships. She should have got that relationship with the Lord fixed, stable, unmovable. Because once you start struggling with that one, everything else tends to fall apart. But if you get that right, everything else will fall into place. And human relationships want certainty, don't they? Yes, Whitney, don't trust your feelings. And the record of broken relationships through mistrust and deception is, is the background, I would say it's the background to most of the Hollywood scripts for most of the movies. And it's the background for a lot of the, the stuff that happens in real life. Mistrust, deception. How can I know? How can I trust? Just this week, a, a woman was convicted of stealing $2 million from lonely men looking for love. $2 million. From one of her victims, she stole $1.7 million. You ask yourself, how could they have been so blind and so stupid? But you see, when you reach that point of of loneliness, money isn't all that important. And unfortunately, those who seek a relationship, there there are just so many willing to take advantage of that. To pretend that they're in love, that they love you and and that they're going to care for you and all this type of stuff, to say all the right things and at the end all they really want is your money. Someone who does know a lot about these things is God. I'm asking you what you know about these things and God knows a lot about these things. And throughout the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelations, God is always urging us to trust him. On the flip side of that, on the other side of that, is the enemy, the devil, who continues to sow the seeds of doubt. Even in the garden, Satan was already telling us 
Did God really say? Did God really say that? Genesis 3.1. Who are you going to believe? You're going to believe God or are you going to believe the devil? Now in the following chapters, as we dig deeper and as Abraham matures in the faith, we see that his issues go beyond matters of heredity and in both descendants and the land. Even though these are matters that he brings up here early on in chapter 15, eventually he arrives at the point where he surrenders all of these. He's, he's willing to, to exchange all of these to want just more of God. Chapter 22, I'm thinking here. And that God is in fact his greatest reward. You can have it all, Lord, because now all I want, all I want is you. And I wish the same for us, that we would arrive at that point in our life when God is our greatest reward. And God, our Father, actually wants his children to feel assured about his promises. If you are here this morning and you have trusted Jesus Christ as your sin bearer, as Abram did in verse 6, then God wants you to be assured about your standing before him. How can I know? Because he said so. However, if you are continually plagued by doubts, if you think that God plays this game of he loves me, he loves me not, that will hinder, that will render you paralysed in your growth and your walk with God, in your service for him. And we must be careful since there is a danger of having this false assurance that we take our salvation for granted, that uh, where we presume that things are right between you and God, that we stand up as we receive our Grammy Award or Oscar Award and everything else. Thank you, Lord, and, and, and I just want to thank the Lord tonight this place, and then just live a life of debauchery and everything else, that there's no, there's no resemblance between what you're saying with your mouth and the way that you're living with your life. There's nothing there. Because if that is who you are, then someday you will be shocked to hear these words, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So how can we know? Firstly, assurance rests on God's identity. Verse 7. Assurance rests on God's identity. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Any talk of assurance has to start with who God is. You might find it strange that God has to identify himself here and in other places in the scriptures. And this expression, I am, is obviously very significant in the Bible. The the biggest one comes in Exodus, I am who I am. And Jesus said, I am, a few times, seven times. But at a time, if you put it, this declaration, at a time when there was polytheism, people worshipping many deities, many gods, it was important for Abram to know that he was, in fact, he was talking to the same God who called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. 
He's the same one who's communicating. There is a consistency here. It's the same one. And, he, and God reminds Abram that it was, in fact, him. It was him who initiated, who sustained, who followed through and brought him to this place. Today we might get a little bit finicky and, and say, no God, you just called him and he came. You didn't actually bring him. Actually, God carried him. Abram didn't dream up the idea of moving to Canaan and, and starting a new faith. He didn't map out a strategy for taking the land. God did it. God was the one who called, who promised, who enabled and fixed things along the way. God kept fixing. When Abram went on a tangent down to Egypt, God brought him back. And he's going to mess up next chapter and God's going to bring him back again. And here it is God who initiates a covenant with Abram. The terms aren't negotiable. He simply announced them. And we're going to look at that. Now when it comes to a matter of assurance, it is a matter of belief. It is a matter of faith in him and who he is. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul tells us, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion because God does not leave things half-cocked. He doesn't, like me, he doesn't leave things, just walks off the job, leaves things half-done. He finishes it. And as we come to him in his word and as we worship in Prayer and, and, and praise, our knowledge, our knowledge of him grows. We need this because the closer we get, the more we get to know God, the closer we, we, we walk with him, the panorama becomes clearer. And, and the Apostle Paul tells us Romans that it will be easier to, to discern what the will of God is. And that which is not the will of God. So assurance rests in God's identity. Secondly, assurance rests on God's purpose. Verse 7 again. To give you this land to take possession of it. Just as his purpose has been stated regarding his seed, that all the nations will be blessed through him, God's purpose now also includes the real estate, the physical land. Abram wasn't going to Canaan for a holiday. He wasn't going out there to check out his investments, to take pictures and then tell stories of his adventures. He was actually going there to take possession of it. But as we know... His journey, his walk, wasn't all tiptoed through the tulips. In fact, there were challenges in walking in within the promises of God. And it is in this context that, it, that some of the news is not all good. It's not all good. Verses 12 to 16. 
As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. I don't know if you're like me, but in my younger days, because I grew up in a Christian home, I I would read passages like this and, and simply be immersed in all the exciting good news and and glossing. I just wanted to gloss over all the bad news. So I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about this. Perhaps because it's a little bit hard to take, to accept God's purpose as involving Abram's offspring enduring hardship in a foreign land Not for one year, for three, for five, for twenty, or even for a hundred years, but enduring hardship for four hundred years. That, if we were to go back four hundred years from today, was it's a rounded figure because it was actually four hundred thirty. But if we go back four hundred years, it takes us back to. 16, 17, that'll do. 400 years of hardship is, Lord, it's a bit hard to take, isn't it? Bad news is usually associated with, with, with darkness, is it not, in the scriptures? The valley of the shadow of death. And as, and as we, we move to the New Testament and the perfect one, the chosen one, the Son of God dying on a cross, guess what happened? There is darkness all over the land on Calvary and in the rest of the land. And as we read the rest of the scriptures, we see that God's eternal purpose involves trials and suffering. That's his purpose. Now, why would a good God allow that? In his own people, on his own son. Why does he do that? Because it is his purpose. It is his purpose. And once we accept this, we can know that whatever situation we are facing, and I know that some of you here are going through moments of darkness, are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I want to say to you that God is there with you, that even when Flesh and blood cannot fix your problems, but God can. And if the solution is not found in this life, it will be rewarded and it will definitely be found in him in the next. 
And once we arrive at that point of saying, Lord, you do all things perfect, we can know that whatever situation we are facing now, that many times, I would say most times, God has a plan to get us through it, even in this life. It is just that we have to come to the point, like Abram, to understand that our reward isn't the the money in the bank, the beautiful face, the wonderful children who are all rocket scientists, that we're so proud of them and, and all of that. It's, it's not any of that. It's actually God himself, the ultimate reward. And once you strip, God strips all the layers and everything else, once we arrive at that point like Abram, then we will accept God's word that he is our greatest reward. Now this passage here is tied up with the conquest of the land under Joshua. The Amorites is here a general term because there's a lot of ites, but the Amorites is a general term for all of the residents of Canaan, the population there. And and that phrase, the the full measure, tells us that God has this predetermined limit to which he allows the nations to go in their sin before he steps in in a dramatic way and says, that's enough, judgment is here. Now many Christians today especially struggle with the conquest of Cain and how a good God could allow that. But it wasn't the act of a capricious, murderous God was in fact the result of God's patience running out on a sinful people until the sin has reached its full measure. And God says it's enough. The depravity, the level of depravity that we see today, oh Lord, how long? Has it reached your measure yet? And we would have to say it's getting pretty close, isn't it? shows us the awesome sovereignty of God who knows in advance when the sins of a nation will be ripe for judgment. It also shows us the great patience of the Lord just as he waited with Noah for a hundred years as he was building his show and tell, great ark, and he preached to a nation that didn't want to listen a hundred years and God patiently waiting and waiting. 2 Peter 3.9 The patience of the Lord who is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. At the same time as, 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 as the measure of sinfulness grows and, and, and will reach its limit sooner rather than later, the task for us is to continue to preach so that the, the people will come to repentance so that people will hear and they will have an opportunity to turn. That is our task. He's patient toward us. Thirdly, assurance is for obedient believers. Assurance is for obedient believers. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know 
that I will gain possession of it. Verse 9, So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in half and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he didn't cut in half and the birds of prey came down and carcasses and Abram drove them away. What's happening here? My goodness, this sounds like, you know, all the vegans and vegetarians are like, what's that all about? You see, Abram believed God's promise concerning his seed and heard God's promise of the land but now he asked for even more confirmation. Come on, Abram, you've heard the Lord declare. Why are you continuing to ask questions? You know, like, it's God you're talking to here. You're a bit brash in it. Now, there's, there's a couple of reasons why Abram, it doesn't sound as bad as, as, as it looks. Two reasons that this wasn't the case, that he was just pushing God to the limit. Firstly, because of God's response. If God was angry, he would have let him know, as he does in other parts of Scripture. God knows our hearts better than we do. He knows our motives. He knows the way that we phrase our verbal questions because he already reaches into our hearts and says, where is that coming from? He says, that's where it's coming from. God knew Abram. Secondly, Abram asked his question in a reverent way, he addresses God as Adonai Yahweh, Sovereign Lord. He wasn't demanding an answer, but rather humbly asking for a confirmation that he wanted, that he needed. Basically asking, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because my faith is just the size of a, of a mustard seed. It's really small. I'm struggling here. Abram, I'll work with that. And Abram's heart is, is, is further seen in his obedient response to God's command to bring these animals. And Abram knew exactly, unlike us, he knew exactly what God was ordering him to do because this was common practice in his day. In that day, there were no written contracts in front of witnesses signed by a lawyer or justice of the peace. This is how covenants and contracts were sealed. They would take some sacrificial animals, split them in two. The parties of the covenant would ratify it by the parties walking between the split halves of the animals. Now, Abram didn't respond by saying, I'm not bringing nothing until... No, he trusted and did what he was told to do. Cut the animals in two, except the birds, put them in place. He waited and waited and waited. Even the birds of prey, the vultures, were getting into the act and he had to shoo them away all the while. He waited and waited. As you know, if you've walked for any length of time in a Christian faith, you will know that patience 
is definitely part of an obedient faith, being patient. It is, however, much more difficult in this instant generation that we have lost the art of being patient. We demand things, we don't ask, we demand. I want it all, as uh, Queen Freddie Mercury sung, I want it all, I want it all, I want it now. And together with that, the lack of patience is this constant demand, if you get into any discussion about faith, this constant demand for proof is is, is wearing a little thin. And and the the sceptic demands for proof, but the sceptic will will get none because he's coming from the context of, of cynicism and unbelief trying to find cracks in our faith to exploit. That's where he's coming from. And and the sceptic will not find an answer unless God does something miraculous because he's coming from a proud, unrepentant heart. Irrespective of of how good and, and well given is your answer. God doesn't meet the sceptic's demand for proof because he doesn't need evidence. He needs repentance. That's the problem. We recall Jesus' conversation with the scribes and the Pharisees who demanded a sign. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 39. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Read proof. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And I think it is in this context where we need to save our energy sometimes and our tempers and all of that and stop throwing pearls before swine. I know that sounds harsh. But he does give assurance. He does give assurance to those who have put their trust in the Saviour if they come to him with a submissive, obedient heart and asking to those who come and asking for assurance that they need to go on believing, that they're on the right track. Keep going. And in verses 17 to 18, our assurance is confirmed in his actions. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot, much better word, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. As I said before, a couple of times in this passage we read about darkness. And here there is another way we can look at this, this darkness. The, and I want to go to the, the Scottish preacher, the great preacher, expositor of the Word of God, Alexander McLaren, who lived a couple of centuries ago. And, and Alexander McLaren points here to the double aspect of God's nature, his identity, his character, and that 
he says, and I quote, in that while God can never be completely known, he is never completely hid. I love that. He can never be completely known and he is never completely hid. And also he says, and I quote, he speaks of the twofold aspect of the divine nature by which to hearts that love he is gladsome light and to unloving ones he is a threatening darkness. As to the Israelites, the pillar was light and to the Egyptians, darkness and terror. So the same God is joy to some and dread to others. Do you follow that? And God turned up, not during the daylight, but he turned up in the darkness as smoking fire pot with a blazing torch. Ouch! The significant thing here is, is about the vision here is that God, not Abram, passed through the animal pieces. He passed right through with blazing fire. And I believe that the animals were cooked well and truly if there was any peace left after all, at all after all of that. Now, the, remember how I said the covenant, it was between two parties and they would cut the animals and then the two parties would walk through the middle? It's supposed to be between two equal parties, but this covenant is, even though it's between God and, and, and man, it is unilateral, dependent on God alone. It is unconditional. And he alone walks. And all that Abram does is watch, receive, marvel. I say, wow, should have had my phone with me. Take a picture of this. What is more, what is more is that this whole act dramatise this self-imposed curse in case you fail to honour the covenant. If you broke the covenant, basically the sense was, if I break my word, may I become like this severed animal. That's exactly what you were saying. If I break my word. Now I think that if people took the same approach today to the covenants that they make, to marriage, to their employers, to the loans that they take and everything else, if, if people had the same approach, may it be to me as these severed animals, I think we would, I think the, the, we would have a lot less lawyers. The courts will be quite empty, I would say. There will be fewer divorces. You can read a lot more about this in Jeremiah chapter 34 in your own time. Jeremiah chapter 34. Folks, and this is where I want to come to to bring it all here this morning. This act here is one of the, the, the most significant moments in all of human history. This is the moment when God gives us a picture, when he, he illustrates to us the, the line of salvation, what he is prepared to walk, what he is prepared to do, 
to bring salvation to us. God knew that we, steeped in our sinfulness, would never be able to keep our side off the contract. And the marvellous beauty of God's amazing grace is that he also made provision for this, that we will not be able to, to fulfil our side of the covenant and so he even made provision for our fallenness by walking through it, by taking the curse upon himself. He alone, the holy God, he alone could make provision for this. Just as God gave Abram a graphic picture of his covenant and its ratification to assure him, we go to Calvary and see the graphic picture and the Son of God, the perfect one, dying on a cross and darkness enveloped the earth. And God did his greatest work there. Oh, the light would come the light would come on the third day. And God gives us a wonderful image that every time we take part in communion, Jesus said, it is a graphic demonstration of a new covenant through his blood. That every time we drink of it, we are remembering him. Those are the symbols that God has entered into a covenant with us and he made all the provisions. All that we can actually do is just accept and believe and trust and be assured that we're on the right track. He initiated by sending his son to die for us. He chose us when we were dead in our sins. He sealed the covenant with his blood. All we do is receive. So, my friends, my brothers and sisters, if our salvation rests on our choice of God, then you can never be sure of it. But if it rests on God's sovereign choice of us and on the finished work of Christ, then that's where our assurance lies. God bless us. May he help us understand and accept and marvel and worship in the wonderful grace that he has given us.